One day, your parents uh, were sitting down, reading through uh, book after book, trying to figure out what name they were going to name you. And uh, some of you, they should have looked harder. Um, But it's interesting, right, to start looking at uh, why your parents named you, what they named you, and kind of what the meanings of your names are. So just for fun, I thought I would uh, look up actually all the staff and elder names here just to kind of see what they all uh, meant. So let's start with uh, Pastor Jared. Uh, Jared, big, tall dude, burly beard. Uh, here's what his name means. Uh, and if you can throw that up there, that would be awesome. Uh, fire the laser. Go. Andrew, you back there? Is he back there? Okay, thank you. There we go. Uh, Jared names, uh, Jared's name means down to earth. And um, it's very, very fitting uh, with, with Jared. He's a man, just such a strong man. Uh, it sounds kind of weird that I'm saying that, but he's, he's just... Just such an awesome dude, very, very down-to-earth, very relational, very, you know, it's, it's, it's fitting. And plus his name is spelled with uh, A-D at the end, of pretty cool. Uh, Brandon, in all of his beardness, um, our, our worship leader here, unbelievable dude, his name means prince or brave. And actually, I did a little bit more research. It's an Irish name, and it also means little raven. So if you ever want to have some fun with Brandon, uh, just go up and like, you know, just like say something about a raven to him. I don't even know what a raven is, but I think it's a bird. Uh, next, uh, Pastor Jeff. Uh, Pastor Jeff has been doing our, uh, our finances and many, many other things as an elder here since we started. Uh, been a good friend of mine since 1999. We go way back, and his name means gift of peace, and it is incredibly fitting because Jeff is certainly a gift of peace. Now, Lonnie's is really interesting. Many of you guys know Pastor Lonnie. Um, Lonnie's name means uh, ready for battle. And uh, I know many of you guys know that, that Lonnie was a, uh, a, a police chief. And so, I mean, he fought some major crime, definitely ready for battle, you know, carried a gat. I mean, this dude was pretty rough and tumble dude, right? So ready for battle as Pastor Lonnie. And hold, hold on, before we put my name up there, any guesses at what my name means? Any guesses? Okay. What's that? Soul Patch. Okay, thank you. Um, brilliant. Okay, Captain Obvious there. What, what else we got? Any ideas? What's that? Crazy. Okay. Creative. Creative. Um, looked long and hard in the dictionary for that one. My, uh, my name actually means warlike. And uh, I thought about coming out in blue face paint tonight uh, just because William Wallace is somewhat of, of a fan of mine. Uh, but warlike is my name. Now, uh, crazy. These days they make laptops. And on these laptops, uh, amazingly enough, you can tap into the World Wide Web in a mere second. So I thought to myself, self, what would be a whole lot of fun is if we talk to some folks tonight who don't know what their name means and just right in front of everyone, figure out what their name means, okay? So if you're here tonight and you have no clue what your name means, I'd like to talk to you here for a second. What's your name, all right? So who wants to start us off here? Who wants to start us off? Yeah, right right there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Justin. All right, let's look up Justin, shall we? Definition. How many Justins do we have here? Because this won't just fit him. Okay, we got one over there. I see that hand. All right. Definition of Justin, not Urban Dictionary, but meaning of Justin. Okay. It's Latin in its origin. Uh, This website lists uh, Justin Timberlake uh, as, okay, here we go. Uh, Literally, it's just, upright, or righteous is the meaning of of Justin. So, righteous, man. It's awesome. Right? Awesome. Good start. All right, who else? Who else? Yes, right there. Ryan. How many other Ryans do we have here? Okay, the ever-classic Ryan name. All right, here we go. Ryan name, uh, Ryan's name, rather, it means, let's see here, it's a baby boy name. That's encouraging. Oh, this is nice. How many Ryans? Just stand up. How many Ryans here? Can we? Okay, this is really good for you. Uh, the, okay, hold on, just keep standing. The, the name Ryan means little king. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Right on. All right, that was fun. Uh, how about a female? I saw Dylan. Okay, but how do you spell your actual? I don't, I don't even know that's going to be in there. Well, that's true. How M-A-G-D-A-L-E-N-E. Oh, Magdalene. Okay. As in, sorry, as in Mary. Um, okay, I'm only seeing... Uh, I'm only seeing Urban Dictionary de- definition of Magdalene. Let's fire the laser on this one and see what happens. 
I, um, no, uh, <laughs> well, for those of you guys that know who Mary Magdalene is in the Bible, um, this website just defines her and it says a reformed prostitute is what the, <laughs> because she changed, reformed used to be, let's move on, next name, anyone, <laughs> any other female, yes. Mallory, and Mallory, you kind of spell your name weird, so how is it? M-A-L-R-I-E, okay. Unlike the other Mallory's ways to spell it, okay. Here we go, Mallory, the, okay, this is name meaning and origin, here we go, okay. Mallory, this should be interesting. Do, you, don't, you really don't know what your name means? Okay, oh, ooh. Um, <laughs> it's not as bad as the last one, but it means luckless, that's what your name means. Luckless. Like, thank you, mom and dad. I'm not sure. Luckless. Although you could take a spiritual turn on it and say we don't need luck anyway. Okay. Uh, last but not least, another uh, of those of the estrogen species. Anyone else? What? Brienne? Is that what you said? Okay. That's the name of my sister. I'm not sure if calling out my sister there or what you're doing. All right. Brienne. Meaning of Brienne, uh, a girl's name. And it means high, noble, and uh, exalted. Okay, pretty cool. How many, how many of you guys have the name Brienne? Okay. And just, just so we know, were there any other Magdalens in here? I just want to, okay, because I, I want to publicly apologize to you <laughs> for calling you. Uh, anyway, okay. So, a lot of meaning in names, point being. A uh, lot of meaning in names. So what if, what if, let's say, hypothetically speaking, we came to a text a particular passage in the Bible where God made clear what his name is. Uh, maybe you'd agree with me that if, if by chance, hypothetically, we came to that particular text, it would be really, really interesting to see what that was. It just so happens, of all nights you could be here, you came on the night where we're studying the back half of Exodus chapter 3. And it just so happens that on this particular night, uh, we will get to see uh, God's name. And it won't be what you're expecting And maybe it won't be what you believe it to be, but I'm guaranteeing you tonight we're all in uh, for a special treat. So because of the amount of things that are on my mind, heart, I want to pray, and uh, and then we're just going to, we're going to go to it. Is that cool, guys? I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for braving the elements, and uh, let's let's pray and ask God to come. Um, Father, I thank you, I thank you in advance that there's one name that is above all other names. And uh, it's in that name tonight that I desire um, to communicate your word. I pray tonight, God, that you would come and make yourself very, very present here. I pray, God, that these would not be my words, but that that it would be your word. Uh, So please, God, uh, convict, change, and draw us to yourself tonight. In your holy and awesome name, and all God's people said, amen. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Moses is a shepherd in Midian, a long way from where he spent his first 40 years of life in Egypt. He is a shepherd and he has traveled to the outskirts of what the Bible says is the wilderness. Uh, All of a sudden he finds himself um, near a bush that is burning, but though it's flaming, it's not being consumed, which means it's it's not getting blackened. Uh, There's no uh, maybe smoke. It's, It's just on fire. Well, out of that burning bush, a voice calls out, Moses, Moses. And pretty soon, what happens is God is interacting very intimately with soon-to-be-called Moses. Uh, This man, uh, Moses, um, God says to him in a very real personal way that he has heard the groans and the cries of the Israelites who have been enslaved in Egypt under the Egyptian hand now for almost 400 years. And so God says, it's time, I've heard their groans, it's time for me to do something about it. And he says, Moses, uh, you're going to be the guy to go to Egypt and be the deliverer, as it were, in the human sense of my people. Moses asks a question. He says, well, well, who am I? And I shared with you guys last week, God's answer isn't, you're awesome, Moses. It's not, you got a strong back, Moses. It's not, you're 80, you got some OMP, some old man power, Moses. God doesn't say any of those things. God says, uh, I'll be with you. Moses, it doesn't matter who you are at all. It actually matters who I am. I'll define, I'll make this story happen. 
And, uh, and so that's where we left it, kind of halfway into this conversation. Tonight we pick up, as this conversation continues, with Moses' second question in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. When you're there, say, I am there. Thank you so much, all of you and the Magdalens as well. Verse 13. Um, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Fair question. Uh, God, you told me that I'm going to go to your people and say that we're all leaving Egypt. And, and that, that is all going to happen under your name. So if they ask me, what's your name? I'm like, well, what do you want me to say? Like, how am I going to fill in those blanks? Like, give me some insight here. Moses has misordered his questions, like many of you do. His first question was, who am I? And then his second question to God was, who are you? Most of you in your walk with Christ exist in that exact precise way. You want to first know who you are. You read the Bible first looking for application for you. What does this mean for my life? How, how do I apply this to where, where I am and what I'm going through and my struggles and my joys? And then, who is God? I believe the questions, not just in life, but in Scripture, should be asked first. God, who are you? And then based on God's character, based on who he is, based on his awesomeness, now then, who am I? What is my identity in light of you? Moses misorders his questions, but it's still a fair question. God, what do you want me to say? What's your name? How am I supposed to speak to this? I love this. The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Well, God looks to Moses from a burning bush and said, I am who I am. Which does anyone else, does that feel like a cop-out? Like, you are who you are? Like, that's the worst answer ever, you know? And, and you know, you can kind of picture Moses being like, so you want me to go say, hey, so who, what's his name? He is who he is, you know? Like, like really philosophical, like, um, the Hebrew words that God says is, ehahe, ehahe, asher, ehahe. I am who I am. Um, and again, it seems like a, Ridiculous answer, but actually, um, what God does in this moment, I believe, is God reveals to Moses the depth of his character. Um, have you had that moment in your life? Or have you had those moments? Where, like all of a sudden, you didn't understand the depth of God's love, especially for you, and in one moment, like a whole world was opened up. Maybe you lived your whole life in feeling unforgivable and then all of a sudden God forgave and you, it, you sensed it and you knew it was real and you knew it was for you. Um, in this moment, in I am who I am, Moses gets to see God's character because I believe it's not a cop-out. I believe God's actually saying at least three things about himself in saying, Eahe, Ashur, Eahe. The first thing is this, that God exists in and of himself. I am who I am. In other words, my, my kids ask me all the time, so, like, who birthed God? Right? Did, did, like, some mom God birth son God? And then we had God? Like, like you know, they're, they're always trying to conceptualize. And I get the chance to say, God always was and always is and always what? Will be, right? Like, that God is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. And I know it's tough to conceptualize, but God just is. And not just is, but will always be. And so when God says, I am who I am, what he's saying is, I exist in and of myself. Isn't it encouraging to anyone else that you get the opportunity to serve and worship a God who was not created by man? A bunch of men or a bunch of women didn't get together one day or a man didn't have a, a realization about himself. God was and, and is and always will be. He exists in and of himself. That's why he says, I am who I am. The second thing is this. He says, I am who I am because it's in, inferring that he does not change. Okay. Uh, we were talking in the office about this this week. And uh, Brandon, our, our worship leader, 
just unbelievable heart. Um, I know you guys love his beard. I know you think he looks like Adam Levine and all those things, you know, but, um, but I want you to know, like, this dude up here insanely loves you and does such a phenomenal job week in and week out of taking us to the throne of God. Amen? Okay. But what, what many of you don't know is Brandon was here from the second week of Matthias, eight and a half years ago. Like, he was like 10, Okay. Like, hadn't hit puberty, like was, you know, he was a young dude. He wasn't 10, a little bit older, 11. But he was just a young, he was just a young dude. And uh, now he's 27. You know, he's married and he's, he's a, and, and he's way more, <laughs> quick math, don't, don't worry about it, all right. Get, gotta carry the one, you gotta carry the one. Um, but he, he just, he has so much wisdom and, and always has been way more mature than his age would say, but. Um, we were talking about, I was just like, Brandon, do you remember like the dude you were at 21 and the dude you are now at 27? And I, I've, though he was strong always, like I've just, I've seen such a transformation in his life, such a growth in his life. Um, I, I, I love the dude. I, I revere the dude. He's such an awesome guy. Um, but God doesn't work that way. Like you can't look back at a time when God was and then he's like, now he's morphed or now he's more mature, or now he's grown. All of you would say that about your life, and so we try to put that on God. Well, God is an ever-changing being, no? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even quoting that text, actually, I believe, sells it a little bit short. God does not change. When God says to Moses, I am who I am, he's inferring, I do not change. And I hope, I hope, and I pray that for those of you guys that are wrestling with the identity of God and therefore the identity of yourself, I pray that one of the firm foundations that God begins to breathe again in your heart is that he does not change. He doesn't change by the winds like some of you do. If it's a cold day, you're angry. If it's a warm day, you're somber. If it's, you know, like we change with the weather. How many of you guys like when it started snowing, you got excited? How many of you guys when it started snowing, you want to beat your head in the wall, right? I mean, right? He's not affected by those things. He's God. I want you to be encouraged by that. When God says, I am who I am, he's saying, I do not change. And I know many of you guys are like, yeah, but when he wipes out man, woman, and child in the Old Testament, that was a different God. At least that's what my Sunday school teacher told me. No. Though God reveals himself throughout history and eventually shows Christ to the world, though Christ always was, it's the same God. The same God who is present now is the same God who is present in the burning bush. Same God. So he says, I am who I am. The last piece of this is God is eternal. I am who I am means he's forever. I've been trying to teach my kids about heaven recently, and I've had some interesting conversations. Um, so uh, my son, Dawson, is really enjoying Uno right now. And so I've been teaching him and my kids about heaven, and, you know, when we die, um, if we have a relationship with Christ, We'll get to worship Christ forever in heaven. Um, and I know many of you guys grew up in cultures where like heaven was, was like Disney World for Christians. You know what I'm saying? The, right? Where it's like when you die, you'll get to be in heaven and it'll be awesome and it'll be pizza buffets. And, you know, I, I say this all the time, but just as a reiteration, if you're not excited about worshiping God forever, then heaven's not for you. I mean, that's what we'll be doing. That's what we'll be consumed by. My son struggles with that like many of you. So he says, does my son... Uh, Daddy, I don't want to go to heaven because I want to play Uno, right? And, right? And, and so the inclination in us then is to say what? But there will be Uno in heaven. I did not say that. I'm trying to shape my son's doctrine, you know? There probably won't be Uno in heaven, you know? And so I'm trying to explain all this, but he's really enamored also with when I will die. So you want to start having some interesting conversation with your kids um, I'm teaching my kids about heaven when we die. And so he starts asking me now all the time, Daddy, are you going to die? And last night he's like, Daddy, are you going to die tomorrow? And like, what do you tell the kid? It's like, probably not, but it could happen, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, right? Everything in our mind, though, everything in our mind sees a beginning and an end. Everything we do sees a beginning and an end. Every timeline that we have is very constrained. Have you ever just stopped and think and thought rather about an eternal God? 
Like, I don't know about you, but my mind just like, I can't even, I can't even begin to conceptualize living forever. But when God says to Moses, I am who I am, what he's saying is, I'm eternal. Like, I'm not temporal. I don't have a timeline. In fact, I've created time. So God looks at Moses from a burning bush and he says, I am who I am. And then he said, does God say this to the people of Israel? I am has sent me to you. Now, this just sounds like a poor, like, source of pronouns. You know what I mean? Like, so God, you want me to just show up and say, I am sent me to you, which in essence is confusing in and of itself, isn't it? Um, but the word that God uses here is yod Head vod Head, which is the word Yahweh. Uh, I am is Yahweh. Now, this text, this verse, Jared will affirm this, brilliant dude. This is one of the most hotly contested verses in the Old Testament. People want to know so much, do scholars, about what, does God, what is God saying here? I mean, commentary and book after book have been written about this one verse. What is God saying? Uh, for me, honestly, from the beginning of this journey and preparing to teach it tonight, I wasn't enamored with the debates. What I was enamored with was what God says to Moses and what he's been saying, echoing in eternity, and that's he's God. Uh, after the, the construction of the second temple, most Jews wouldn't even say, yod hey vad hey." They wouldn't even say Yahweh because it held with it so much um, girth. It held with it so much reverence and so much awe. They would say Adonai when they were speaking about God, more of a, more of a personal term for God. And yet from a burning bush, Moses gets to hear, I am who I am, and then you tell him, I am, yod heh vad heh sent you. Um, I say this all the time here, and just as another encouragement, the name Jesus should hold in your heart more value and more significance than other names. I've joked about it before, but there's a reason why people don't say, ah, Buddha, or ah, Joseph Smith. Even when they're cursing, there's a reason why people say, Jesus Christ. It's because even in their cursing, they know there's power in the name. Have you ever heard someone say, Joseph Smith? Heck no, right? Because there's no power in that dead dude. He's dead, right? And some of you guys are like, that's harsh. The Bible tells me that there's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. And it ain't Joseph Smith, I'm sorry. Okay, he's in a tomb. My God's alive. Amen? Amen. All right. So the name, the name of Christ, the name of Christ better hold significant weight. Moses gets to hear that straight from God's mouth. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. And I picture Moses like taking notes. Like, man, there's a lot to communicate. You know, throw me a pen here out of the bush, would you? The Lord, the God of your fathers... The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He's done this already. We saw in the last text in the earlier parts of Exodus 3. God reminds uh, Moses here that he is the God of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then later we study Joseph. God is the God of these people. And he will be remembered throughout all generations. Here's what I think. We live in such a tunnel. Our perspective's so limited. When was the last time you just stopped and thought to yourself, I worship the same God that Paul did. Like I'm worshiping, learning about, growing with the exact same God that is in a burning bush talking to Moses. I think going into this story, many of you guys disconnect yourself from Moses. And I'm asking, I'm begging, please, just for a few moments in time, could you at least see the similarities between you and Moses? They're like, well, what similarities are there? As the story progresses, I think you'll see many. But in this moment, it starts with you're worshiping the same God as he. Isn't it unbelievable? He will be remembered throughout all generations, God says to Moses. And then verse 16, my favorite word, um, certainly the back half of this chapter, the word go. God says go. The transfiguration, you guys know the story? Uh, Jesus takes Peter, um, 
Peter, James, and John uh, up to a mountain. And they get to see like the glory of Christ. They get to meet some ancient legends of the Old Testament and kind of a ghostlyish figure. And Peter, classic simpleton, uh, he says, it's good for us to be here, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, you idiot. You know, like, yeah, it's good. Like, this is great. You know, you picture Peter like, oh, yeah, that's great, you know. <laughs> but then he says, like a good Boy Scout does, he says, uh, should we build a tent? And uh, it's like, you know, I just picture Jesus kind of like looking at him like, what, what are you talking about? You know, like, build a tent. But the essence of what Peter's saying is, I want to stay here. If we can just stay here in this moment forever, like this is what life's about. Take away the gospel for a second and just enter your life. Has there ever been a moment where you're like, if I could just experience this forever, like this would truly be life. I experience that every time at Texas Roadhouse. Um, <laughs> amen. Right? It's just like, you know, and you're, you sit down and then you're just like, and then you see the butter coming. And you're like, I'm pretty sure like God made this himself. You know? Right? But Moses wants to stay, I believe. I mean, he's got God at his access. He's, he's so intimately connected with God now that he's able to ask God questions. They're interacting. It's a very close moment for Moses and God, and yet God says go. Um, we live in a very dominated Christian subculture. Uh, that would say build the walls up as high as they can go, because if you go out there, then there's secular this, and then there's secular that, and you'll be influenced by this, and you'll be influenced by that. And not that any of that is not true. There certainly is uh, secularism in a secular world. But the approach of building up walls so that we can just stay together, build relationships together, never experiencing anything outside of this. I see many families do this in their home, build up walls in their home, not hospitable, don't want others in, don't want to go out. They want to protect their kids so much so that they're like, you know, build a, uh, build a Russian wall. What's the Berlin wall like around their house, you know? Right? The Russian wall is the new name for it, right? And the whole, the whole premise is what? Because we want to stay here. It's better here. Out there is scary. Out there is unknown. And yet, what do you see consistently in the Scripture? What I see, people meet with God, and then God consistently says, go. Why? Because when you meet with God, one of the purposes of that encounter with God is so that you can tell others about that encounter. That you can show how deeply your life has been impacted by that encounter. If it's just Moses and God at a burning bush, unbelievable, yes. But no one else will reap the benefits of a man who has now heard the voice of God. And so what are we doing? Coming together, making each other feel good. Building up walls of protection. And acting as if the world isn't out there at all. The problem is, I walk out in it all the time, and what I see are people who are desperate to hear about encounters with a true God, because they're worshiping false ones. And if just for a moment, instead of protecting so strongly, or wishing to build tents around feelings and moments, we have to understand that God's consistent call in the Scripture is go. Many people who disobey that, and you do as well. And just ask Jonah how that goes for you. Go and gather the elders of Israel. Interesting that there's elders. Even in slavery, are the Israelites, there's still a structure. Go and gather the elders, God says to Moses of Israel, verse 16, and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob has appeared. And I, I think at this point, Moses has to be saying, okay, you're really repetitive, God. Like, if you're God, please don't repeat yourself over and over and over. But God knows the human very well, right? Like, he knows how much repetition the human brain, and especially yours, needs, right? 
The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. God says, first, you gather the elders and you tell them that God has seen. When you start to think about it, sharing your faith with those who don't believe in a very real, relevant, tangible way, this is a really brilliant strategy. One of the biggest contentions with the secular world against God is why would God do X, Y, Z? Why would God allow this hurt? Why would God allow this person to die? Why would God allow 9-11 or a tsunami and on and on, right? Their biggest struggle with God is the pain that they believe God has caused. So what if all of a sudden you, because of your deep encounter with God, got to look into the eyes of those people who are hurting and you got to say, but God knows your pain. God hears your cries. God understands what you're going through. And though people may not believe it, and I'm sure if you're like me, you've had folks when you've said that, blank stare, not getting it and saying, no, he doesn't. But I tell you what, when God does open their heart to believe that for themselves, isn't it one of the most powerful moments you can ever experience? When God takes you along and you just begin to speak truth into someone's life and you see the blinders open and their heart just explode with finally believing that God does care about them. That's Moses' strategy. God has seen. He knows what's been done to you in Egypt, and he cares. Verse 17. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. Moses gets to stand across a bush that's being burned but not consumed, and he gets to hear out of the mouth of yod heh vod I promise. And I feel like tonight some of you guys need to hear that word. I feel like some of you guys tonight need to hear, I promise I will provide for you more than that job ever will. I know even for some of you at a very young age, you're already like, gripped by the man to provide for your family and everything that you see is consumed with career advancement, more money, more things over here, more things over there. And God's saying tonight, I promise I will be more than all of those things for you. I feel like some of you in relationships here tonight need to hear the voice of the Lord say, I promise I will fulfill you more than he or she ever will. I promise. Stop finding your value first in the affirmation of a man. I promise you, you will find love and care that he or she can never provide in me. I feel like some of you need to hear the promise from Psalm 512. He will bless the righteous. Psalm 9.9, he is a refuge for the oppressed. I feel like some of you guys need to hear the promise from Psalm 27.14, wait and he will strengthen your heart. I feel like some of you guys tonight need to hear the promise from Psalm 32.8, that he will guide. Psalm 34.4, that there's deliverance from evil. Psalm 46.1, that he is a refuge, strength, and help in trouble. The scripture packed with his promises. I feel like some of you need to hear from Psalm 48.14, that he's sovereign. Psalm 50, he answers the call for deliverance, that he's the father to the fatherless later in the Psalms. I feel like some of you guys tonight I need to hear Luke 6.38 to say it will be given to us in the same manner as of Christ. I feel like you need to hear the scripture in John 3.36, the promise. Those who believe in the Son have everlasting life. And I feel like tonight some of you need to hear the promise from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 that he will keep his promises. The, the promises are over and over and over. The scripture packed with them. And Moses gets to hear it face to face with the Lord. I promise I will deliver. If you don't know the promises, you can't watch God fulfill them, people. And when you entrench your life with the promises of God, then all you see, he did it again, did it again. And I never thought he could do that, but the scripture said he's near to the brokenhearted. And sure enough, I'm brokenhearted, and I know his nearness. God always fulfills his promises because he is who he is.
I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, middle verse 17, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perseites, the Hiveites, and the Jebusites, and other ites of like nature. (laughs) A land flowing with milk and honey. We mentioned this last week. To some of you, that doesn't seem so appealing. This is what Canaan is going to be consistently referenced to. This is the land that Moses is going to be directing the people to through many years of stress and turmoil. A land that flows with with milk and honey. What a combo. Verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. And which is crazy. They're going to listen? Moses has been in Midian for 40 years. And God's saying, You're going to show up in Egypt, you're going to meet with the elders, and they're going to listen to you. Unbelievable. You're going to listen, and, um, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and say to him, The Lord. Every time you see the Lord in the Old Testament, Lord, it's, Yah- it's that term Yahweh over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. 6,800 times. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Hold on a second, hold on a second. Met with, what's the word? Us. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I'm just posing a question. Has God met with them or Moses? You know what I'm saying? Is it possible, and again, I'm just asking a question, that when God says this is going to happen with the elders, that God has met, is it possible that this is an allusion to things that Jesus later talks about, that, that in Christ, he tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. In other words, when you encounter God, you take that, encounter or that light as it were with you right just a question it's possible why does God say he has met with us and now middle verse 18 please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God (laughs) again just so you understand what God is telling Moses go to Pharaoh tell him you need a three-day break from slavery after being enslaved for 400 years this seems kind of like a bait-and-switch right like Moses is going to walk in with his hands in his pocket. Yeah, hey, I'm Moses. Remember me? Uh, I used to be here, Prince of Egypt. You know my name. Uh, we're going to need a three-day sabbatical from slavery. Uh, not going so well for us. So if you don't mind, you could just let us get on out of here. We'll be on our way. We'll come back in three, I promise. Right? Like that, that kind of that feels like this is what he's saying. Like God's like, deceive Pharaoh. Go out to the wilderness. But there's a key piece of this text that we can't miss. What's the end of this verse say in verse 18? That we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The focus is not on releasing them from slavery. The focus is on worship. In other words, the focus isn't on the created and what the created are doing or will do. The focus is on the creator. God says that all these things will happen Go out for a three-day journey and make sacrifice to the Lord our God. But God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Pharaoh's going to take some convincing. In ancient Egyptian literature, there is a very common terminology that's used to describe Pharaoh. And that's his mighty hand. His power, his rule, his reign, all the time connected with Pharaoh. If you know your Bible, you know that all throughout the Old Testament, God's mighty right arm, unless you're Tebow, God's mighty right arm, he's a lefty for you girls and guys who do ballet, uh, his mighty right arm is, is very, very talked about in the scriptures. So God uses Egyptian literature here, Egyptian thought and culture to teach about whose mighty hand is truly mighty. So look what he goes on to say here in verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. All the plagues. We'll go through those in our journey of Exodus. And after that, he will let you go. Here's what God's saying. Pharaoh's mighty hand. God's. You can take this image and you can put it on every situation in your life. Uh, This is what Jesus told Pilate. Pilate was inferring to Jesus that like Pilate had the control in his life and Jesus like no like I'm gonna die on this cross whatever you know whatever happens whatever you said like Pilate thought he had right but around him was a sovereign God 
of people who struggle with sovereignty struggle with this image. A people who struggle with sovereignty, here's what they put God and people as. Like God is kind of doing his thing and people are kind of doing their thing and every once in a while they cross paths. But what God says in verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt and then after that he will let you go. Because I release my grip, Pharaoh will release his. Okay, Verse 21, this is really interesting. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and when you go, you shall not go empty. It's like, are you going to put some diesel in the tank, God? Like, what do you mean? Like, fill up with gas? Kind of. Look at verse 22. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor. This is the Jews of the, Israel, or of the Egyptians. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor. And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So the Jews who are now leaving because of the plagues that God will invoke on Egypt are going to ask the Egyptians who they're connecting with all of this somber reality, including the death of their own children at times, will get there. Those Jews are just going to ask the Egyptians, the women, for gold, silver, clothing, and jewelry. Is this not odd to anyone else? Like, how in the world is this going to happen? The Egyptians are going to be angry with you guys. I mean, you, you guys have been enslaved. And yet, what does God say? You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. You're going to get some coin. You're going to get some gold. Then you're going to bling up your kids. That's what he says. It's in the Hebrew there. Promise. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Not only are you going to get let out of slavery, but you're going to go looking good, okay? So you've been slave for 400 years. We're going to have some gold rings. And for many of you guys that know the story coming up, it's like, what good is that going to do in the, in the wilderness? We'll find out. Does this seem to any of you like kind of an, an odd interaction? A burning bush and a dude who's called and a God who describes his name. The question is why? Why does God interact with Moses in this way and then tell him to go? Next slide, here's why. God reveals his character to Moses so that Moses can reveal God's character to the people. God is going to show himself to Moses, describe his name to Moses, give him a picture of himself that Moses, I believe, has has not even, even come close to thinking about God, so that then Moses can go and share that with everyone else. Here's what God said. Here's who God is. Here's what God did. And so now all of a sudden, I'm, I'm getting to this very clear understanding of our similarities with Moses. It's not just that we serve the same God. It's that we have the same call. And you're like, well, I'm not called to lead the Israelites out of slavery. I agree. However, we are called to reflect God's character, to share about God's character, to live in light of God's character all the time, everywhere. In fact, very specifically, from 2 Corinthians. Check out this text. Beautiful text. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the beginning of the call of a Christian. Once you have come to Christ, every past piece of you is now made new in the person of Jesus. And to that, I just say amen, right? Come on, right? So, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and look, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God didn't do his God thing for you, give you a high five and say, sit on the bench the rest of your life. Like just hang over here, relax, I'll come back, play some Uno, then we'll play Uno in heaven when I come back. That's not what God says. He's given you the ministry of reconciliation. There's purpose with your life. Very intentionally then, Paul goes on to write, that is in Christ God. Uh, back, back to the last side, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Isn't it crazy that God would allow Moses to do this? Can I ask you a question? Why wouldn't God just swoop down and do it himself? And the point is, he is, right? Who's going to bring the plagues? It's not Moses. So why Moses then? 
God is giving Moses the opportunity to watch God work in an intimate way that he may grow in his worship, not of himself, but of God. Why does God do the things in your life? It's God doing them to bring you intimately connected with him in worship of who he is. That makes us then what Paul goes on to write. Look at this, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Was Moses an ambassador? Yes. Are we ambassadors? Yes. So we're like, I don't even want to talk about social studies. We're not talking about social studies or the UN right now. We're talking about we, us, as representatives of God to a world. God making his appeal through us. Isn't that crazy to anyone else? God is making his appeal about his reality and who he is through us. And can we just say right now, some of you, it's, it's not going so well. Some of you right now are like, if I'm an ambassador for God, he better find some better ambassadors, right? These next few moments are not intended to bring guilt or, to bring guilt or shame. These next few moments, Holy Spirit empowered, I pray would bring conviction to all of us. There's a difference. The guilty feel shameful. The convicted repent. Are you with me, church? The guilty feel shameful. The convicted repent. So we must assess our ambassadorism-ish, right? We have to assess how we're doing. So here's how I want to do that. Next slide. Ways that we reveal God's character to the culture around us. Ways that we show God's character. The first is this, how we love. When we encounter God, we have this unbelievable opportunity to reveal the depth of God's love with others. Agree or disagree? When you're going through times of trial in your life, would you begin to disconnect from the Lord? Don't you see yourself getting bitter quickly? Some of you are straight angry. Angry people. Angry at traffic. Angry at the store clerk. Angry at the government. Angry at your mom. I mean, for heaven's sakes. Angry at your mom, right? I mean, you're just angry at everything. Why? Because when you press into the character of God, you do not, my friends, listen, you do not have to muster up love. You're pressing into the one who by definition is love. And so then what happens is is God transforms your heart, making you more like him and revealing the depth of who he is. You cannot help but love others. You don't see others and judge. You see others in love. You don't see others and backbite. You see others and you're gracious. So just gauge right now. How are you in your, in your being an ambassador, how are you doing with loving others? We show the culture God's character in that way. Number two is this, how we forgive. Hello, hello. Look, I know there's been some crazy stuff done to you. Hurtful, harmful, pain exists deeper than I can ever believe or imagine. One of the greatest ways we show the world God's character is how we forgive, period. You've experienced it yourself. Someone was gracious to you when they shouldn't have been. And don't you remember thinking like, why aren't you yelling at me? Like, I thought this would break up this relationship. Why are, we, why are you still here? And they just looked at you and they smiled. They're like, God's been gracious to me. How could I not be gracious to you? Imagine if that was all of our approach. And then take us times Christendom, times every believer. But what does the world see? Lack of forgiveness. And so the world says, if the people who are claiming to serve the one who forgives and they don't forgive, I'm not so sure their God forgives. Poor ambassadors. Poor ambassadors. Third is this, not just how we forgive or not just how we love, but how we repent. I believe the world does not want what many of you think the world wants to see in us. We use the word hypocritical in a very wrong context. The world says we're hypocritical. 
Not because we're not perfect, but because we try to act like we can be or we are. There is no hypocrisy in saying, I need the grace of Christ, repenting and receiving it. Then how could the world call us hypocrites? You're a hypocrite. I never said I was perfect. If I'm a hypocrite for claiming God's grace and that I need it, then I think you need to look up a hypocrite in Webster's. Like, I'm not a hypocrite. I need God's grace. I will fail, and I need to repent. The world has to see Christians turning to the Lord, and we in that get to show the world a huge piece of God's character that he receives us, that he loves us, that he cares, that he isn't disconnected from us or kicking us out. We're like the prodigal son, throwing a party when the son comes home. They must, the world, see us repent, and in doing so, they'll see a massive part of God's gracious character. Next, fourthly. How we live joyfully. Um, so I grew up in a church, um, and I had great church experience and great parents who taught me about the Lord. But often I would wonder in our church settings, did someone die in here? You know? I, I, was, I was like, look, I just like started looking around, and I was a, I've always been crazy. So I was a crazy kid. Um, but I remember like looking around, like that person looks dead. Like, you know, this whole row is sleeping. You know, the, the, like we're, we're singing songs with zero emotion. Then sings my soul. My, I'm already dead. Da-da, da-da. Can I ask you this? Uh, people want to live, no matter what. People are looking for two things everywhere. A love and truth, and I believe in that order. They want to live. They want to live. So when they come to our gatherings or come when there's a group of Christians together and they seem dead or they watch Christians in trial curse God, what do you think they're going to do? Those people say that, that they have joy in Christ and I went to their worship gathering and if that's joy, no thanks. Like All those guys were at a funeral. Real, genuine joy is produced by the hope that comes in knowing no matter what, that God's in control, that no matter what, God is with us, and no matter what, our God loves us. That's the hope and the joy that the world needs to see. You don't have to muster that up. You don't have to think today. Today I'm going to be joyful. The whole point is all you need to do today is think about the Lord. We've overcomplicated it. But I need to do this, and I need to check this off. Listen, if there's a checkoff list, all you need to do, all you need to do to check off is check off thinking about the Lord, reading about the Lord. Studying the Lord produces joy. Fifth, a couple more. How we articulate God's word. And some of you guys are right now condemned because you're like, I don't know any of God's word. I didn't say how much you know about God's word. I said, how do you articulate God's word? Okay, some of you guys are like, I I can't even memorize Jesus wept. (laughs) Maybe you should try it. You know, it kind of rolls off the tongue. It'll come to you, you know. Jesus wept. Sound it out, you know. Go slow, right? Some of you guys are like, but, well, I know John 3.16, but that's so cliche. Of course I should know. Like John 3.16 is the most, it's it's kind of a lame verse. It's cliche verse. You know, they show it at, if John 3.16 is lame and cliche, then call me lame and cliche. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I'm going to say it right now, that's true. That's true. So if anyone has to say that's cliche, or if that's the only verse you know, that's a great place to start. A great place to start. It's how we articulate God's word. We're great at articulating our feelings at times. Oh, I feel this way about God, or I feel this way about God. What about just saying it just how God said it? It's way better to stick to how God said it than to try to make up your own words. We must be articulators of God's word. And certainly as you grow as a disciple of his, you'll grow in your knowledge of God's word. Sixth, how we abhor evil. Uh, the world gets really confused. And again, they don't get confused that we struggle. They get confused that we look like we're really enjoying evil. Right? Uh, the world gets really confused by some of you guys who, out of your mouth, like Christian, like you're wearing the, the smiley Walmart Christian shirt, you know, the smiley face. 
roll back, you know. And then, and then simultaneously, then simultaneously, they see you at a party or somewhere else just enjoying evil, just loving it. I mean, just feasting on it. And they're over in the corner and they're watching. They may not never say anything to you. But they're like, man, they certainly seem in this moment of their life just to absolutely love evil. And uh, some people never ever see it, but it overflows into other areas of your life. Uh, Some of you guys are doing things personally and individually and secretly. And you're you're just loving evil. You're like, Mark, well, love's a strong word. I believe you naturally do what you love and you naturally talk about what you love. You're like, well, I don't love sexual sin. Well, maybe your life would say different. I mean, if you continue to go back to it like a dog returns to its vomit, maybe you love it more than you would get it credit, give it credit for. And the world sees that. The world knows that. They can see it in our hearts. And instantaneously, they're like, that's not an ambassador. And if that's an ambassador, I don't want their God. And some of you guys right now are feeling a lot of pressure. Give me one more second. Okay, number seven, how we celebrate God and what he has done. Celebrate. Okay. I see the pressure was never intended or is not in this moment to be intended to be on you. Some of you guys are like, whoa, 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 Mark, man, I'm a horrible ambassador. Feasting on my flesh, don't love nobody, don't forgive anybody, hate everybody, including my mom, you know. Some of you guys are like, I'm just a horrible ambassador, Mark. Thanks a lot for making me feel bad tonight. You're missing the point. Ambassadors are celebrating God and what God has done. Ambassadors know that it's not them, but it's God in them. Ambassadors understand that they don't have to be God for anybody. Ambassadors understand their role. They're simply pointing to someone else. But our pointing happens with every facet of our life. Moses encounters God and will spend the rest of the book of Exodus telling people about him. Telling the Israelites, telling Pharaoh, telling Egyptians, telling his wife and his brother who God is and what God has done. No matter how bad you feel you're doing as an ambassador, Let me remind you of one of the greatest facets of the character of God, and that's grace. Grace upon grace. It's not about how difficult you walked in here, but maybe tonight, how believed you are again in the greatness of God's character that he might call you to go. Not building a tent and just staying here forever but believing that your call is greater than that. Listen, just for a moment, me to you. What if God did such a work that all of our pictures of an ambassador got super heavy in a way that drew us to the Lord more near than we had ever been? What if in this room and as we journey together, We saw this as our opportunity to be built up, trained, encouraged as ambassadors. And what if tonight some of you guys who are like, I've hated God. I haven't understood God. But tonight, I want to know this God. What if that was possible for you? And the promise is is that it is. I'm just saying, guys, like, Failure at being an ambassador. Struggle. Fail and fail again. However, what I know is this. Is what the world needs to see is repentance. They need to see receiving grace and extending grace. And that, I feel like I can do. Anyone else? I can receive me some grace. And some of you have been extending your arm, trying to do it on your own. And I'm just saying tonight... Receive his grace and repent. Let's stand together.
the most talked about, commentated, written about texts in the Old Testament. Top 10. Scholar after scholar, what is God saying about his name? What is God communicating? And for me, there's no debate. For me, there's no papers to watch dilute the situation. There's no chance for us to walk out of here confused. God tells Moses who he is. And he says he's God. He's everything. He's Alpha, he's Omega. He's beginning, he's in. He's grace and he's love and he's mercy and he's forgiveness. And his promises come true. He tells Moses that he's God. That there will be no other God. Later he'll tell Moses that should ever come before me. And not because he's arrogant in the sense, but because he's God. And so we have church tonight. The opportunity just to close our eyes, open our hearts, extend our arms and say, God, show me again the power of your character. And then let who you are dictate who I am. God, for my friends, my brothers and sisters, I pray that you would help us receive grace, convict us of how we've been an ambassador, and I pray tonight that in your mercy we would go.